Hey everybody, so if you're like me, you've been spending way too much time watching CNBC. I don't know if you're day trading or watching your 401k portfolio go up and down, but I'm getting a little confused. So I thought I'd call an expert. The smartest guy in the industry I know is Michael Belisario of Baird. So Michael's joining us today and we're going to ask him what stocks are overvalued and what stocks are undervalued. And what stocks should we be buying and what stocks should we be selling? And oh, by the way, what lessons did we learn from the market's actions today versus 2008 that might help guide us in the tough decisions we have to make today? Mike, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate you being with us. How are you surviving quarantine? Uh, I'm surviving. It's, uh, it's not ideal, but I, I jokingly tell everyone my wife and I don't have any kids running around or screaming babies, and there's no dog back, uh, barking in the background. So it's uh, it's just it's pretty much as good as you can get it, I suppose. So where are you? I know you're in Chicago. You've been there the whole time? No, we spent the, uh, the first four weeks in our condo in Chicago, and it was 30-some degrees, and I was beyond busy with the, the world kind of falling apart and hotel stocks falling off the cliff. And then uh, for four weeks, my wife and I drove down to uh, your neck of the woods. We're actually uh, in Greensboro, Georgia. My in-laws have a place down there, and we, uh, we quarantined in Georgia, which was a lot better than quarantining in Chicago. And then we came back about a week and a half ago. So still locked down here in Chicago, but I think we're going into what they call phase three now later this week. So can, can get a haircut this weekend finally. Uh, good for you. Where, where was that? Lake Oconee, I'm guessing? Yep. Yep. Uh, new house on the lake. No one was there because her parents were stuck up in Milwaukee and her dad couldn't get off work. So they twisted our arm to say, hey, you know, go stay in the house and, and house it for a few weeks. So we drove down 12 hours and uh, it was great. Kind of miss it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, being crammed back in an apartment in Chicago. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah two-bedroom two condo. I've been at the dining room table. I'm, I'm in our bedroom now because there's too much street work going on, and my wife's in the second bedroom. So we've made do so far. We got four or five monitors set up at two, two and a half now locations. So we're, we're all up to speed. And frankly, I don't know if either of us are going to go back in the office for the remainder of the year. Yeah, I, you're probably right. We're hearing that a lot. Yeah, my, my, my wife's company actually sent out an email yesterday that said, um, work from home, we're going to give you more money to buy a better desk, better chair, whatever you need, but be prepared to stay at home through the remainder of the year. So that's a, that, that's a big tech company, though. But uh, for me, we got a, a smaller office in Chicago, and I don't really need to get on the blue line. And I have this set up at home, and I have my phone and the internet, so I can do... 98, 99% of what I need to do. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it, I suppose. Well, good luck. Keep us posted. We're, we're looking at individuals learning every day. Yeah. So we wanted to have you on. Thanks for coming. Obviously, the stock market is crazy right now, and the hotel, publicly traded hotel REITs are an important part of that. So let's dive in. Uh, but I think let's start, give me a timeline sort of the psychology of all of this. Cause I think that's, what's most important, you know, how, in your opinion, from your view, how was the world in March, early March, then April, and then today? Yeah, it's crazy to think that it's, I think week 12 now, but what I thought was most interesting was in early March, there was not a lot of talk of 
hotels being impacted. It was the airlines and it was the cruise lines. And for whatever reason, there just was not a lot of news coverage, uh, media attention on hotels. And then all of a sudden, Marriott announced they were furloughing a lot of employees. Pebblebrook announced they were going to close the vast majority of their hotels. And I think that caught investors off guard. And it was a, oh, shoot, hotels can close. Let's do some math around this. And it goes to zero. Well, as you know, it doesn't go to zero. The bottom line goes negative. And it took about three weeks for people to run these very dire, zero occupancy, survival of the fittest scenarios. And that's what we were focused on pretty much through the middle, latter part of March. I had someone ask me, give me the odds at the end of the year that Marriott's bankrupt. That just kind of tells you where sentiment was, things were in free fall, but we basically wrote the models to zero, actually negative. And it was uh, who has the most months of liquidity and the lower leverage names traded better, I guess less bad. But it was, it was a pretty quick switch, and investors went from not really focusing too much on hotels and the downside to all of a sudden they are in the middle of the storm and people are never going to travel ever again. Yeah, we were hearing the same things. Uh, and then, uh, you know, um, now it's sort of roaring back. And we, I don't know, I'm not feeling the roaring back, but the stock market is sure up. Yeah, that, that's, that's the decoupling. And again, yesterday and then today, uh, you know, we're, we're getting close, at least for the indices, to, to record highs. I, I think what people for hotels specifically, maybe focusing on the wrong thing, everything we see is the occupancy data, which it should be getting better. Cities, states are reopening. You really can't go below zero, which was almost where we were in, in early April. So the, the reopening theme is really strong. And it's, it's for restaurants, it's for hotels, it's for travel. Everyone wants to get back out on the road and, and, and get out of um, uh, their house and, and go on the spring breaks that they didn't have. Uh, but it, it's getting less bad. It's not good. And I think people need to remember that the leisure traveler, everyone still has their jobs. A lot of people have extra dollars in their pockets today because of the government stimulus. But your family, my wife and I, we can't go on vacation every weekend and keep the hotel industry afloat as much as I'd like to. The, the business traveler is not there. The group and convention business is not there. So it'll be really interesting to see, at least from the hotel perspective, how the fall looks. And when we get back into the heavier business travel season and people have, have taken their vacations, do we get more of a level playing field and kind of a more normalized run rate? But everyone's focused on occupancy and that's only half the equation, right? Rates down and occupancy is also higher than the data suggests because so many hotels are closed too. So when you actually slice and dice the data a few different ways, it's getting less bad, but it's not as good as I think the media, the headlines suggest and, and some of the data suggests. So we're, you know, one of the points is people start traveling when they have somewhere to go. So, okay, we had Memorial Day weekend last time, uh, but at some point, I think you're right, the vacation's, you know, going to end. We need some business travel to get there. I mean, okay, I hope, I'm glad Disney's working on opening up and the sports dialogue is happening. We're opening up, but, but we need business traveler to ultimately come back, right? When do you think that happens? I, I think it's going to be a while, um, a couple of things to remember, at least from the REITs perspective, they own a lot of urban hotels. They own a lot of big box hotels. It's not 
the average hotel in the United States, like a Choice or a Wyndham or even a Marriott with suburban courtyards and residence in zone, right? San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, New York. I don't know when I'm gonna fly to New York uh, for the next business meeting. I'm happy to get on a plane. I'll stay in a hotel, but if I have no one to meet on the other end because no one's in the office, I, I, I think it's gonna be tough. You'll, you'll see some pickup, I'm sure, for uh, smaller business travel where a, a, a sole proprietor or a business of 10 people can make decisions faster than a large tech company that's going to say no travel for the remainder of the year. But I, I, I think business travel is, it, we're probably talking the spring next year, just to get through what uh, this upcoming winter looks like with how the virus uh, maybe comes back and cases go back up. And then for group business, it's probably another six to 12 months beyond that. I think I think corporations broadly are going to use this as an opportunity to, to, to really watch the expense side of their P&L. And, and travel and entertainment is a very easy way to do that. So how does that translate specifically to the hotel stocks, meaning the ones that have a lot of New York exposure? Yeah, they're all in tough spots because they all have similar portfolios. They've all, they're all in the top five, top 10 markets. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of is someone down 80% or is someone down 90%, right? They're, they're, they're both kind of bad today, but one's a little less bad than the other. You know, they, ha they all have, for the most part, a good amount of liquidity. They've, they've drawn on their lines of credit. Uh, the thing I had to remind people, investors, that is, in March and April is covenants don't matter. Debt doesn't matter. Leverage doesn't matter. Hotel REITs are just over 5% of the rooms in the United States, maybe 8 to 10% of the value because they own uh, bigger hotels, bigger markets. They are the least of the bank's problems. You know, access to, to public equity markets, debt markets, um, you know, lines of credit. It, the banks aren't worried about them. They're worried about everyone else that owns five hotels, cross-collateralized CMBS debt, no line of credit, uh, no access to capital. That, that's the, the bigger problem for the lenders. So all the public REITs kind of have a free pass for now. They've all gotten these uh, line of credit amendments and covenant waivers through March of next year. And then there's a, a, a slow sunsetting provision uh, through the remainder of 21. So there's a pretty good bridge to get to the back half of next year when things should be looking better, but they're all burning cash. We assume they continue to all burn cash through the remainder of the year, which only makes investments, purchasing stock, doing something accretive that much harder because their hands are tied to an balance sheet side. Yeah, but I think my answer is then why are their stock prices as high as they are right now? Uh, it, it's, I think it's all the reopening trade and, and the, the, the public market is very forward looking. No investor we're talking to today is talking about 2020. Very few people are talking about 2021. It's all what does 22 or 23 look like? And you kind of get a free pass for the next few quarters. And at, at some point, we might have some uh, worsening data or a step back in fundamentals, and the stocks will, will come back off their, their recent highs. But I, I think the thing to remember, too, is the stocks are up a lot, but there's a lot less equity value embedded in them today. So the enterprise values aren't changing as much. The gross real estate values aren't changing as much as they were uh, when they were falling in February, March, and early April. So I, I think the stocks are recovering because the broader recovery trade is gaining momentum and, and hotels and restaurants and airlines and cruise lines 
fit into that category. And investors aren't focusing on earnings. It's a very thematic, what got hit hard, what might bounce the most in a reopening scenario and, and hotel REITs and hotel brands fit that pretty well today. Yeah, and I guess there's a lot of money just sitting on the sideline. It's got to go somewhere. So it's plugging into the market in general. And why not buy some real estate REITs? Even if they're not earning cash flow, there's, a, the, the, there's good value of the underlying real estate, I suppose. Yeah, and it, it, it's a hard asset. And you know, you've seen some really big private equity firms buy securities in a handful of the REITs. And the thing that's, one, you get liquidity. As you know, assets aren't really trading right now. Portfolios aren't trading. You get to get some of the upside by owning the security. And the added benefit is you don't have to have any cash burn by owning the property if you wanted to buy one. So uh, people have followed the liquidity, the smart money, the private equity investors. Um, I, I doubt they're still pouring new money into the stocks because they were buyers in, in March and April at the lows. But uh, yeah, and, and you're not buying the hotel REITs for a dividend today because they, they've all cut their dividends, but it's more of a reflation and reopening story and the stocks are just too cheap and they'll get less cheap in the coming six months, 12 months, 18 months. So which stocks do you like today that we should be buying? We, we still like Apple. Uh, some of that is really just our view that business travel and, and group and convention business is a long way off from recovering. And their select service hotel kind of everywhere USA portfolio is doing better, or I guess, again, less bad than everyone else. And the balance sheet's good. And um, I think you can pick your points there. And we like Summit. We like the select service model. And I think as we get more clarity about things reopening, businesses starting to travel again, we'll continue to move up the risk curve, so to speak. So I think I agree with you because they're in – secondary tertiary markets that got good assets, mostly limited service. So they seem to be better poised for a quicker recovery. Uh, go the other way. What stocks do you, do you, are you most concerned about? Um, start there. Yeah, I, I think the ones that have the most leverage. So I spent a lot of time the last couple of weeks and we're doing some more work on it. Looking at what happened in 2009, 10 and 11, how did the companies then create or destroy value? We're trying to use that same playbook for how companies today may or may not create value. And I think the thing that's most concerning to us is the balance sheets are going to be in rough shape on the back end of this. So they're going to have a hard time buying assets, buying notes, deploying capital. Some of it, some of, part of it is they can't do it because the lenders have tied their hands with these covenant agreements. So when you think about who can create value in a way, no one can really do anything because they're in survival mode. And I think what I can't handicap and I have no idea how you even probability weighted is when do the lenders pick winners and losers, or at least start picking winners and losers. And I don't think the, the hotel REITs are going to be in that loser bucket category because they have the access to the capital markets and they'll, they'll raise some equity. Or they'll do something to, to right size the balance sheet. But at some point when it's forbearance 2.0 or 3.0, when do the lenders tighten the screws? And that most impacts the companies that have higher leverage because they're not going to be able to uh, invest capital, grow creatively, acquire properties. They're, they might have to issue equity and, uh, and dilute the existing shareholder base. And that's companies like Ashford, Braemar, Hersha. You just saw Park 
uh, issue $550 million of, of high yield debt. The, the companies that have the higher lever, levered balance sheets will certainly bounce more off the lows. But I think when we look beyond the next six months, what are 12 months, 18 months out, those companies are in a tougher position to, to position themselves to create value and or at least get back to where their stocks were in February and March before the world fell off a cliff. But I think that my comment about 2009 and 10 was a lot of the companies issued equity to buy assets and they issued equity at a discount and ultimately permanently impaired the trajectory of their stock price, which is why you haven't seen any of the hotel REIT stocks, whether it was the peak in 2015 or more recently, none of the stocks were anywhere close to the 2007 highs because the denominator was just so much larger. And I, I think the thing that gets the stocks today back closer to their recent highs is keeping the denominator low, don't issue, don't issue equity. And when you don't do that, you're not buying assets, you're not really doing anything. And the management teams like to do deals. So I'd be hard pressed to see no one issue any equity or no one want to buy any assets when things start to look a little bit better later in the year. Yeah. So, uh, you know, let's talk offense. When are they going to go on offense? How are they going to create value? And when they do, are they going to buy buyback stock or are they going to buy assets? I, I think they'll buy assets because by the time, it's funny how the public market works, right? It, it, it's very forward looking and fundamentals will still be bad when the stocks are better, which is what happened in 2010 and 11. And the companies will probably take advantage of that and issue some equity. At that point, their stocks will be higher. So they're not going to be buying back stock. I bet they try to buy some assets, uh, maybe maybe some note purchases. There were only one or two examples of those last cycle, and they didn't really go well. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it will be later in the year when there's a better trajectory for cash flow being break even or maybe even slightly positive, and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel a little bit better. And the companies that can do something, Host, Sunstone, RLJ, the, the low lever guys, their hands are still kind of tied though because they have these uh, line of credit and credit uh, facility amendments. So until they take those handcuffs off, so to speak, they, they really can't do anything, but it all depends on the stock price. And if the public market continues to be optimistic about a reopening and fundamentals aren't improving, but the stocks are, I wouldn't be surprised to see some companies take advantage of that just to kind of right size the balance sheet, add some dry powder to be ready to put to work. But I, I don't think the public market is, is willing to allow these companies to invest any money for the next three months, six months, because it's all about cash preservation and we're still in cash burn mode. And I think the, even if it's a fantastic real estate deal and you look out five years and say, this is going to be a home run, it, it's going to be really tough for them to pitch that to the public markets because everyone's so focused on preserving liquidity and maintaining a, an excess, an excessively large cash balance. Yeah, we're not predicting that the REITs are going to be the big buyers uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, yeah, and I, I, think that, I think their best cost of capital is probably to sell an asset or two. Uh, not today necessarily, but uh, there, like you said, there is a lot of money out there. I've gotten a lot of phone calls from people I've never talked to trying to understand the REIT strategies and how to how do they position themselves to take advantage of some of these opportunities that the, the, that the REITs might have to sell. And I'd rather see that personally than them issue equity. Uh, so I actually think maybe some of them are, are net sellers of assets uh, as kind of a first stage of recovery after we get through this cash burn period. 
So let's dive down that path. What, which assets, if maybe if you were in charge of them, which assets would you be selling? Which assets do you see them selling? Yeah, what's interesting about the public markets is sometimes the best assets to sell are the ones that the companies don't want to sell. It's the low cap rate, uh, coastal, resort, uh, you know, a, a pre-COVID five cap. Um, but they, they like the high rev car, high EBITDA per key. But the public market doesn't differentiate between your best asset and your worst asset. We kind of take an average. And if you're selling your lower quality stuff, it's actually dilutive. So I'd love to see them be opportunistic and sell into strength, sell a resort, sell an asset in a, in a higher performing market because you'll get better pricing and more eyeballs and more people that will look at the deal to bid on it and bid it up. But if I had to guess, they'll probably sell the stuff that's weaker performing, more suburban, uh, needs CapEx because they'll, they'll not want to spend the CapEx. Uh, but I, I, I don't think it will be um, you know, the opportunistic high value sale that I would like to see. It's probably more of the continued portfolio pruning and portfolio, portfolio cleanup kind of trade. Yeah, it's so hard to get the premium assets. No one wants to get rid of them. So I don't know. We're, it'd be a fun argument to see hosts sell the Marriott Marquis in Times Square because it's empty yeah. and going to be empty. <laughs> while but yeah and what, what, what could be interesting and, and what could be interesting too maybe some of the REITs sell a bunch of properties into a joint venture and they bring in a, a private equity firm or a foreign capital partner allows them to to keep an ownership interest allows them to keep some of the upside but gives them a half a billion dollars or a billion dollars of, of dry powder to go buy more and put more assets into the joint venture. So I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe some joint ventures come of this, but yeah, it, it's, you look back at prior cycles, people thought New York city was going to recover first. It did. It only lasted for three or four years. There's more buzz again about New York city hotels, closing permanent, uh, permanent reduction in supply. Maybe there's a structural shift in the unions and the, in the employment contracts, and you can actually get some, some good growth in New York. And I think, maybe people will gravitate to New York. Who knows how long that lasts, but that's kind of what happened last cycle. And a lot of times cycles simply just repeat themselves. But right now they're running from New York. I mean, all the real estate well, residential that we're hearing in Orlando and Nashville and et cetera, you know, Charleston, all the cars are New York, New York, New York. Yeah. And if, if when, uh, my my next reincarnation of a REIT analyst or a REIT management team is I'd start a red state REIT. And, and I've been saying this for three or four years, follow where the people are moving, follow where the companies are moving. Phoenix, Scottsdale, Texas, Nashville, Atlanta, Charlotte, people are leaving San Francisco, Boston, Chicago, uh, a handful of other markets. And I, I think that trend probably continues and maybe even gets accelerated, at least in the near term with what's going on. So that. That is a, a hurdle to get over for New York, but think of foreign capital, right? They, they know New York and only New York, yeah. uh, and that's where, money, that's where money goes first. And that probably won't change too much, maybe on the margin, but th I think there will still be interest in New York because you have that embedded real estate value that, that people are going to assume will always be there. Uh, all right, let's talk to uh, you know, joint ventures and mergers and acquisitions. You know, we saw Blackstone and Starwood Capital buy into, to your point, some of these stocks. Mm -hmm. uh, ESA is a good example. Uh, do you see any more of that? Do you see any big M&A happening? No, I, I, I don't think so. I, when we talk to the, the big private guys, 
I think their thought is we would want to buy the stocks six weeks ago or eight weeks ago, but a, a board and a management team is not a seller at that price. I can't get financing for the deal and I don't want to fund the cash shortfall, which is why you've seen them go after the securities. Maybe in 12 months when things are looking better for some portfolios and, and some of the higher level, levered names maybe are still spinning their wheels because they have a leverage problem. Maybe that's when you see some take privates or some public to public transactions. But I think for now, everyone's focused on their own portfolio. Uh, you know, they, they have lots of problem children because lots of hotels are closed. They don't need to grow their portfolio or add hotels and add more problem children. And I, and I think a lot of people are thinking that way. Sit on your hands. Let's, let's weather the storm. We have a lot of liquidity. We'll focus on any of that stuff nine, 12 months down the road. Uh, and then from a brand perspective, same thing goes for Marriott, Hilton, and Hyatt. Like they're, they're also all hunkered down. And I don't think the public market would be receptive to them at all spending dollars to grow their portfolios today. So maybe that's a 2021 theme that starts to, to emerge, but it is not a, a 2020 story or something we're looking at for this year. So you hit on the brands. Let's talk about them. How do they look coming out of this? They're the tallest midgets. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, yeah, it, I, I think the thing that people missed was everyone, investors that is, you know, us included, we kind of drank the Kool-Aid. Like these are, low rev par growth businesses that don't need rev par growth, right? You have this five, six, 7% net unit growth engine that's going to last forever. You're going to buy back a bunch of stock and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, rev par cyclical and it can go down a lot. And the, the brands are in much better shape because they get paid on the top line, right? They don't have to, to feed the cash burn or at least as much as the, the owners do. I think ultimately what comes of this, and this is not just for hotels, this is for other real estate property types, other companies, the big companies and the strong companies get bigger and get stronger. And I think Marriott and Hilton and Hyatt and the big brands have that much more loyalty, uh, staying power and, and network effect, positive network effect than they did beforehand because any smaller players are going to be crowded out. you have any concern about Marriott selling points to American Express? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great for them because it makes it harder for us then in the future because they're just going to, they're going to change the categories. They're going to make it 12,000 points instead of 10,000 points. So they can kind of dilute their way out of that issuance, but it, it, it's, it's creative financing. And, and Marriott said on its conference call that the implied cost of those points, there's a lot of assumptions they make about when they get redeemed and at, 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 at what cost, but they said it was a lower implied interest rate than their bond deal they did at five and three quarters percent. Any chance we have fewer brands? Marriott's still going to have 30 brands when we come out of this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think they'll still have 30 brands. Some people always press me on, you know, do they sell a couple brands? The whole proposition of a brand from a consumer's perspective is to have more options, more choices, more dots on the map, and you do that with more brands. And a lot of that is just to simply circumvent the radius restrictions and areas of protections that are in the brand-specific dots. But yeah, no, there's, I would be shocked if any of them sold brands. It's, I think, it's kind of a one plus one, three um, formula for them. When you think about customer benefits, network effects, all the qualitative things that a brand offers. 
All right, so give me your final outlook on what we're going to look like. I don't know. you kind of done that along the way, but six months, 12 months, 36 months. Yeah, I'll start backwards. I think 36 months, we look, I think the world's pretty similar to what it was before all this happened. Um, you know, if, if the last couple of weekends are any, any indication of what people broadly want to do and get back to some sense of normalcy, I think when people can and their companies allow them, they'll get back on their own. So I, I think 36 months, we're, we're, we think 2023 is kind of the first normalized year, uh, which it kind of put, you know, 36 months kind of puts us there. I, I think things will start to look a lot better in 22 and the, the sense is in 21, the world will be in a much better place. So you'll start to see a lot more things reopen, uh, companies being more active, more transactions, more, more confidence about the underwriting. The, the potential range of outcomes is so wide right now that's what's tough. But I, I, I think deep down the world is going to be pretty similar or a lot more similar than I think people think today as it was 14 weeks ago before all this happened. Uh, I think you're right. I hope you're right. It just be choppy between now and then, right? Yeah. And, and it's and until you get a vaccine and until you have some something that gives people confidence and it's not just people it's, it's companies right if i if i want to go see someone in new york my company has to allow me to travel i have to feel comfortable traveling their company has to allow uh their employees back in the office they have to come back in the office the building they work in has to allow outside guests to come there's just a lot of dominoes that need to fall in place and that will happen eventually and we're kind of on domino one of many dominoes that need of all and unfortunately for hotels and business travel i think they're lower on the list where it's restaurants and things that are local parks museums that get reopened and improved first and hotels are just a little bit further down the list so mike what stocks am i buying again or am i shorting all of them I, so it's a little in the weeds for what we were talking about i actually think what's really interesting is the preferred stocks um you know the, the institutions don't don't play in them just because they're kind of, you know, they trade 10,000, 20,000 shares a day, but you know, Summit has preferreds that I think are at like 17 bucks on a 25 par. They're still paying the dividend. And the reason I think they're interesting is time is on your side, right? They will accrete back up to 25 bucks. So you have 17 to 25 bucks and at 17 bucks, you're getting a seven and a half or eight coupon. And uh, and some of them got crushed. I, I always tell people when I talk to our brokers, you don't need to buy hotel read stocks for the dividend, right? They, they go up and down by the amount of dividend in a week. Buy a true spread investing real estate company with long-term leases if you want a dividend. So um, if you really want to take a flyer, Braemar's preferred, Ashford's, uh, Ashford Trust preferred. But uh, Summit and Pelbrook have preferred that are still trading at 16, 17, 18 bucks on a 25 par. And those companies are going to survive. And yeah. any time they sell an asset or, or raise capital, they just get pushed up the capital stack and get, get to be that much more valuable. And if you go back to 2009, 2011 pullback, 2015, the preferreds were money good every time and you hit a home run on them. Now, they've doubled already, but they go back to par because ultimately when the world's in a better place and people don't think there's bankruptcy risk, they'll, they'll slowly and gradually work their way back up to par. So I, 
I, I, I tell you, look at those. I, I, I think they're just more interesting, and it's just almost a better risk reward. You don't need to buy Pellbrook stock at 15 bucks, thinking it might go to 25 because it might be back at 10 in six months or six weeks even. Yeah, that's what we think. The preferred, I hadn't even thought of the preferred. It's the first time I've heard that, so that's a great nugget. Mike, I agree with everything you got to say. Uh, this is fantastic. You're a wealth of knowledge. I greatly appreciate your time coming on, talking with us. Um, let's stay in touch. I'm going to keep hammering you when the stock market is going the direction I don't understand. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. Happy to help. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll check back on the stock picks in a few weeks. I'm taking notes. Thanks, brother. <laughs>